You are listening to Bicycle Retail Radio, brought to you by the National Bicycle Dealers Association. The NBDA would like to offer a sincere note of thanks to Associate Member Bike Exchange for their continued support of the NBDA and retailers at large. BikeExchange.com is the world's leading bicycle marketplace. Across eight countries, Bike Exchange prides itself as being the one-stop destination to buy, sell, and find everything bike. Since 2007, Bike Exchange has fueled the passion to ride by making it easy to buy and sell online. They connect with consumers everywhere to find, research, and buy all their related cycling needs through their marketplace. They also support and connect hundreds of retail bike stores and brands throughout the world. Bike Exchange is committed to helping people find the right cycling product in a single location and is considered the online destination for all things bicycles. Connecting your retail location to Bike Exchange is free and you pay a commission only on what you sell. Join Bike Exchange today and you'll receive a free one-year membership to the Professional Bike Mechanics Association and a free copy of the NBDA Cost of Doing Business Report. This membership and research has a combined value of $750, and it is being provided free of charge to bike retailers that join Bike Exchange today. Learn more at bikeexchange.com. Welcome to another episode of Bicycle Retail Radio produced by the National Bicycle Dealers Association. This is Heather Mason, MBDA president, specialty bicycle retailer to the heart of the cycling industry. And since 1946, the NBDA has existed to strengthen these businesses through education, research, communication, and advocacy. We truly believe when we create thriving bicycle retailers, the industry and the cycling community follows. Our focus is on creating activities and programming to enhance your business adding to your long-term profitability and success. The MBDA is a non-for-profit supported by the membership of participating retailers and industry partners. If you're not already a member, you can learn more and join online at mbda.com. All right, today's guest is Neil Norton, owner of The Bikery in St. Petersburg, Florida. The Bikery is a laid-back haunt for coffee, espresso pastries, plus a shop selling bicycles, gear, and accessories. The shop opened in 2016 after the idea came to Neil's son, Taylor, when he was checking out bike shops online and noticed a pretty awesome shop located in Berlin, Germany, that bought and sold vintage racing bikes as well as ran a neat little coffee shop. Neil was into craft coffee at the time, and the movement was just gaining steam in the Tampa Bay area. Taylor loved bikes, and so the idea of the bikery was born. Listen in as we talk about the unique features of the bikery, how the shop works with their employees, focusing on service shop efficiency, and the future of retail as Neil sees it. Without further ado, I'm going to welcome Neil to Bicycle Retail Radio. Thank you for coming on the show. Hi, Heather. Thank you. Neil, I love you're such a great member. You join our Monday mingles that the MBDA puts on. I've learned so much from you, and there's so much I want to get into. We were talking offline just before we started about you know, removing the excuses to ride. Like I was saying, I haven't, I would get on my bike. I haven't been on my bike forever. So are you a cyclist? I don't even know this about you, Neil. Actually, right now, the biggest part of my cycling is doing QC check rides on new bikes that have just been built. And I love going out with customers, accompany them on test rides, especially with e-bikes. Really nice to go out and just take a nice 10, 15 minute ride with the folks and help experience that with them. I love to hear that. You know, just back from one of our P2 meetings, visiting a shop in California that sells e-bikes, they said that the pulse is really 
you know, the difference is joining riders out on test rides when they're, so you've really seen that as well, huh? Yeah, I think actually the first time I heard about really trying hard to go on test rides with e-bike customers was from your client. I think it's the new wheel. And That's what it was. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And I was, I paid attention to it and just sort of gave it a try myself. And it really is astonishing how receptive people are to going with them and experiencing the product with them. They have lots of questions. And I think somebody had mentioned that their sales may be 50% higher closing on test rides where you accompany the cyclist. I don't know if it's quite that high, but I think it is a much better experience for the customer. So as long as we have enough people in the store to do it, I, I always recommend to our guys that we go with the customer. And I love going myself. It's a great way to get out and just, you know, a nice break in the day. All right. Are you ready for an embarrassing Heather moment? So, so I should say that I visited the bikery and it was my first time riding an e-bike. All right. Embarrassing moment, right? But I was with this group and we were out and we were like three miles into our ride and I'm like working and I'm like sweating and I'm like, I can't keep up. I don't know what's going on here. And one of the women looks over and she's like, how's it going? And I'm like, uh, okay. She's like, you should really turn your bike on. (laughs) No idea. So, I mean, it can be like, you know, going on a test ride with someone, you know, we're afraid as humans, I think sometimes to admit we don't know something. We think we can just handle it. But when you're test riding with them, you can really make sure they understand the power, you know, of their bike and how to use it. Right. (laughs) Exactly. Right. So funny. All right. So let's dive into this. So your son Taylor is checking out bike shops online and he comes to you and he's like, dad, I have this idea. Like, how did that tell me about this? Actually, Taylor was working at a big bike shop in Tampa and had been there for quite a number of years. He was their buyer. And I had just finished uh, pretty much a a long career traveling and was looking to, to stay at home more. So I was the one that kind of started to prod Taylor and say, hey, you know, what about doing something on our own? What about, you know, your own store? He did everything he could to convince me that that was a really, really rocky road and that I may want to reconsider. (laughs) But once we started kicking things around, we just started to get into it, started to have fun with the concept. I love it. So combining coffee with bikes, was that already done in the area or how did that, that came off of the vision he saw online or describe that a little bit? Right. So, you know, he did point us to steel vintage in Berlin. And we thought it was just beautiful and cool. It had third wave coffee, high quality coffee and vintage racing bikes from all the most iconic brands. And it just seemed on every level, aesthetically and contextually, just a a wonderful idea. So we did look around, for instance, one of the, the shops that we admire a great deal is Angry Catfish up in Minnesota. And they've been there. And then there's other shops, Los Angeles, and I believe actually Mellow Johnny's in Texas has, you know, an integrated coffee service at the shop. So on one trip, investigating trip, Taylor was working on where he visited Moots, uh, a vendor we actually went with. 
they traveled to bike shops all the way from Colorado back to Florida, stopping in and checking out the shops and just sort of investigating what other people were doing and used a lot of that information to help put together the concept. How is it working with your son? Is he, is it day in, day out, six years later, are you still both active in the store? Yeah, actually, Taylor is the general manager. He's sort of, I, I call him the brains of the operation. And he, you know, manages the curation of products, the buying, most of the business aspects, personnel. Yeah, so he's he's at it all the time. I'm here less often, but I spend a lot of time in the home office working maybe more on the back end. So since we open now, we have two new owners. So Taylor is a part owner in the business. And we also have our service manager, John Johnson, and a brilliant young cyclist, Tang Luang, who is an assistant manager and also now uh, on track to be an owner of the store. So this is a unique way that you're working with your employees. You actually have a ownership opportunities for them, as you're indicating, correct? Yeah. So, you know, it was obvious that with a really small shop, as we're getting off the ground and really trying to find our feet, that compensating really wonderful, high quality people is an amazing challenge. And so I developed an idea whereby we have a contract with key people who work here full time that if they hang with us, they are offered a, um, a plan where over a six-year period of time, they vest in the company with a 10% ownership. So it's a little bit of a, a lure to try and keep the very best people here, even if we can't compensate them as highly as we, we know they're worth. You know, we try to do both. We try to, to help make sure that everybody has a, a reasonably good lifestyle. But on top of that, after a six-year period of time staying with the company, they're fully vested. They own 10%. And if the company were to ever sell, they would take part in that. That is a huge thing to offer. You know, this conversation comes up, I'd say weekly, you know, with the retailers that I, that I speak with. It's like, how do, we, how do we compensate? How do we keep employees working for us? There's so many options these days. Sounds like a great way to, you know, give back and really develop a culture and an environment that's really all working towards the greater good of the company. So after six years, and then so you just created that, you worked with a lawyer, like if another retailer wants to make maybe do something similar, what were some of the steps to get that going, Neil? Yeah, I'm just uh, really lucky to have a, a terrific general lawyer that I spoke to. I told him, you know, how hard it was to stay afloat with higher salaries and compensation and, you know, try to develop a program and so work with him. And uh, he put together a, a really cool contract that, you know, spells everything out on what's expected of the employee and what's expected of the company. And, you know, the, the fact is, is the the number one goal of our store really is not profit. You know, I, I never really thought that we would end up making a, a fortune here. That wasn't really what our emphasis was. It was more about creating a, a really wonderful place to be and work and make a living, but not necessarily about making a lot of money. So we are kind of free of a lot of the pressure just to satisfy the bottom line. Wow. 
I think that your employees are pretty lucky. I mean, are you finding that employees are staying to make that six-year mark? Are you finding that that's a motivator that they're sharing with you, Neil? Or So far, so good. We've got the four of us that are actually have a, a stake in the business. We had a young woman who was just brilliant with us. She started as a barista and moved into retail, and she was everything you could want in a management track young employee. And I tried everything I could to convince her to go long-term with the company, but you know, it just wasn't where her head was at. She's more of an artist Mm -hmm. and an entrepreneur. And so she moved out of the St. Pete area and, and is now developing her own business, but that one got away. So there's so much I want to get into. I know you recently switched to a more efficient service center setup. You do a lot with fitting. Just to speak a little bit about the building, um, when you decided you were going to open a store, you know, you chose St. Petersburg. What's the building look like? How much square feet are you working with? Can you describe it a little bit for our listeners? Sure. So the store is about 3,200 square feet. And I know that because you were telling everybody about the coffee operation, we took a really good, hard try at third wave coffee, and that has not worked out. With the advent of COVID, the coffee operation has been pretty much curtailed. And although we still do a few things like our own cold brew coffee and some local kombucha on tap and so on, all interior seating is gone. It's all been replaced by retail and we have tables outside, but that part of the business has been shuttered. So the coffee end of it, you know, we tried really hard and it, and it didn't work. So yeah, the COVID era though did change the way we do a lot of business. And I think pivoting, you know, having that, you know, probably crushed you to make those changes, you know, cause that wasn't your mission vision, but I know you also did some other things as you changed deepening your partnerships with with some brands. I recall you mentioned uh, you set up like a a Rafa section in the store. Is that correct? Yeah. So we had never done really well with apparel. And it's like many bicycle retailers. It can be a, a real area that's difficult. Online sales tend to be really on the up with the apparel. And so we took a really long look at Rafa before we decided to jump in. And the thing about Rafa that appealed most to us is that what they're really selling is lifestyle. They're connecting with their customers just at a really visceral level. And as much as anything, they're a media company. You know, their products are great, but it's that gritty, badass ride 100K through freezing rain for the joy of it vibe, you know, that makes Rafa just really separate and it resonates. The customers love them. And so we jumped in and made some really tough decisions in regards to apparel. And so far, it's been doing really well. It's not just that apparel sales have really doubled for us over the six months we've been with Rafa. But I I really think that their brand acumen enhances our own brand identity. So we've been really pleased and, and hoping that it continues for a while. 
Yeah, I brought them up there because, you know, as you pivoted, you know, with the COVID moving the coffee a little bit different direction, but the addition of Rafa, I feel like Rafa coming into a shop is really, like you're saying, it's that community, that grittiness, that raising, you want to be part of something. And I feel like bike shops, when they have coffee shops or if they have breweries in them, really do have that like heart of the community vibe to them. And I love that you have the table still outside and it's still a destination place and a meeting place. So 3,200 square feet, when you found the building, did you have to do any major renovations and, and build it out? I know from seeing you on Zoom before that you have a dedicated fit studio. So I'm curious, just the inside setup of the store. Yeah. So the build out was really pretty extensive. We hired an architect and we spent probably way too much money. And, you know, a lot of it was was geared towards that central cafe coffee area, which we, you know, had to repurpose as we've grown with retail. And, uh, you know, we, you know, we're listening to the customers and trying to give them what they want. The fact is, is that a lot of our build out has really morphed, but I, I think it's looking good. You know, we try really hard to re-merchandise frequently to, to change it up, to make it interesting and different so that customers don't come in and just experience the same thing time after time. Yeah, I am noticing that when we're visiting retailer store, we used to have like the big center cash and wrap, like the big area. Now that's kind of changing to maybe being on a rolling cart or it's just as you move through and, and we change as an industry, the layout of the store definitely is changing. Now, I want to get into bigger picture thinking. And I know, you know, I think I called you like a couple of weeks ago and prepping for the podcast and you were referring to some different things that are really influencing your decisions right now. Can you speak to some of the ways that you're making decisions for the future of the business? Sure. I, I really think that we as a, a business, and by that, I mean, independent bicycle retailers are experiencing, we're actually, I think we're right in the middle of a huge revolution in both the way we do business and the way we survive in business. And I've been reading a couple of authors that I, I think are brilliant. Probably the best book I've found on retail and how to plan for the future is by Steve Dennis. It's called Remarkable Retail. It's current it's right now and it's in depth. It's basically a roadmap on how to navigate the really changing, you know, murky waters that we're all swimming in right now. And the other one is a book by Doug Stevens called Resurrecting Retail, which is a post pandemic examination of retail and how to thrive and survive in the current environment. So, I've been paying a lot of attention to those two authors. I think they're truly brilliant. I can't recommend them highly enough. Neil, this is going to be a big picture question. And just for our listeners, we're going to put those, those book mentions in the show notes. I mean, how do we thrive? I mean, we have major brands announcing D to C. We have supply is so hard to come by, shrinking margins. I mean, can you over, you know, maybe big picture your thoughts on that? And then we can break it down a little bit. Sure. So this is something that, you know, is upon us. It's not something that we really are going to be seeing in the future. It's something that we're seeing here and now. The revolution in retail is here. 
and it's maybe accelerating. It's not going to go away no matter how much we wish it would. You know, the history of retail where scarcity of products and scarcity of product knowledge put a great deal of power, economic power in our hands, the middleman, the IBD, you know, that's no longer the whole story. And the value of the middleman is crumbling. It's eroding and we can be unhappy about it, but it's just the way the world is and it's not going away. So, you know, the world of digital disruption, customer access, product knowledge via Google, our value to brand manufacturers is evaporating really quickly. Brands can control the product, the story, they can complete the sale and all without us. And the writer can do the research, they can find the product, look for trusted reviews, search out best prices and complete the sale without us. So it's a big win for everybody except the middleman, the independent retailer. And you know, we if we stay where we are, I believe we're we're either going to dwindle down to a two-man service center or eventually sell the enterprise to a, a larger brand partner. And we're seeing a lot of that. So you know, it's like your interview with George Lee. I was I, I was just so influenced by George Lee and his thoughts on operational excellence. He's just brilliant. I think his interview actually, by the way, is worth every bit of every dollar that I paid that year for the membership fee for the NBDA. You know, I could listen to what he had to say once a week and I'd probably learn something every time. But uh, I take exception really with something George had to say about brand connections. For instance, George said, and I'm quoting, brands are going to lead development in the next digital phase because they have the resources to do it. You should align with the ones that are working in your best interests, and they'll continue to work in your best interests. And uh, George recommends that retailers take part in every means of sharing product and customer data we can, you know, with clicks to bricks, supplier fulfillment, and so on. And I that concerns me greatly. In fact, I, I, my opinion is there's a big risk in giving other businesses free unrestricted access to our customer data. You know, our customer data is maybe the most valuable single thing we as retailers own. And just giving it away in exchange for a few click and collect sales, I think is naive. You know, as, as we watch brands go D to C, you think they're just going to get back our customers' data? Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, the data that brands like Specialized, you know, harvested from their customers, then now that they're directly competing for sales with their own wholesale customers, it seems to me that giving that information, that data away is kind of welcoming your own destruction. So I'm very careful about who has access to our customers. So, you know, it's like, almost look at it like, would you let your competing bike shops in your area have access to your customer list and sales data. It's like they are your suppliers, but they're also now becoming very much your competition. Yeah, it's definitely interesting. I'm glad you mentioned George Lee. That podcast was really insightful and really enjoyed having him on the podcast. But this is a really, you know, this conversation will hit home with a lot of our listeners. It's something that, you know, has affected many independent bicycle retailers. We're all trying to navigate forward. How do we work with direct-to-consumer Consumers are savvy. They are looking online. How do we curate our inventory and work best with brands? You know, you mentioned to me, I think it was early in February when we spoke 
about looking at your inventory, almost like a pyramid about the services you offer to better position, better, better set up your shop for future success. Could you describe that pyramid to our listeners, Neil, what you were referring to there? Sure. So what I was looking at, you know, I was taking the, uh, the food pyramid as a, a little bit of a, a template to try and figure out where we're going to take the bikery forward in the next, you know, five years. So put together a, a five-year plan. You know, I, I hope can allow us to really sort of see, you know, where we are now and where we can go. So let's see here. I've got a, a list of what I'll, I'll call the customer value pyramid. And as it's built, you know, right now, we're looking at the big base of our pyramid. It's 50% of our sales, which come from mostly big brands, making up 50% of our gross income. So it's the big base. And then the next layer up is probably commodity products like tubes, tires, other convenience items that people stop in for, pretty profitable. Then maybe up the pyramid, we go to the next level, which is our more unique and curated products, like in our case, Rafa or Silka. Then above that, we start getting into our own suite of services like fit, repairs, maintenance. And then up towards the top, we get to our own branded custom products, you know, water bottles and kits and so on. And then at the very top, our own in-house custom products, such as custom wheel builds, or hopefully in the future, we're going to be talking about 3D printing and custom printing products for our customers. So if you look at the pyramid like that, well, the way I see it right now, and I think many do, is that the base of the pyramid is eroding. You know, bicycle sales, even if they're strong, we're looking at margins shrinking. The brands are directly competing with us for our customers. And as the base of the pyramid starts to crumble, what happens is the pyramid stays a pyramid. It just gets smaller and bit by bit. It sort of you know, sinks down and it just reduces the size and scope of the store. So looking at that, I, I think right now, that's where we're at now. And, I, and we're seeing some erosion at the base of that, but I think it's going to continue and maybe accelerate. This is a real transitional period where, you know, we're still very much invested in the traditional wholesale but I, I think we're going to be looking at a really a much different landscape. So I'm looking at maybe trying to take that pyramid and flip it upside down mm-hmm. and move our own services and products into that broader base, making it stronger. The idea of the store as media about an information base for our customers and just stay relevant outside of the need to turn a profit on big brands products. So maybe we'd look at the future five years out. And like I said, this isn't an immediate like right now thing. This is something that it, that we're trying to look in the magic eight ball and see what's there. I'm thinking maybe the base of the pyramid of, of the future will be leasing store space and expertise to brands who recognize, you know, the immense value of the store as media, as that amazing contact point with our with our riders. And for instance, wouldn't it be amazing for a brand like Le Mans Bicycles, who is a a direct-to-consumer brand with really cool products that, you know, are obviously compelling, 
to have a leased space at a first-rate shop where customers can come and touch their products and see them and learn about them in a, you know, a really visceral way that you cannot do online. They just don't have that. So it's a huge advantage. You don't maybe need any margin participation. They, they would lease your space. And then if their sales don't increase, they can abandon that particular idea. No problem. Then next up on the, the pyramid would be our own branded products and services. So we would want to expand that, getting into what I call gravel travel or adventure travel, more and more of our own branded products. One of the big things we're looking at is membership in a for-pay program for customers of products and services where we offer really unique value and create a tribe of customers that that is just a big part of the store. And then more uniquely uh, and highly curated products like from overseas, things that you can't find easily online, then the commodity products, and then probably special order products from a universe of brands where the customer would pay the shop for consultancy. They could order, for instance, a, you know, Trek bike in where, you know, we don't participate in margin on that, but the bike comes in, we make sure the customer's totally fit, ready to go. The bike is perfectly put together and send them on their way at the the peak of the pyramid. So, That's what I see, you know, a little ways out. Hopefully I've got it at least close because we're really working hard on that. Yeah, there's a lot there. Uh, And I love the idea of putting it into like the food pyramid and flipping that pyramid over. An exercise that we did with our retail members of our P2 groups is having them think, think far out. What if you could start over, like for our listeners who maybe are store owners, store managers, you're in it. If you could start over and redesign a retail store right now, redo it, what would that store look like, knowing all the battles that we'll, that we'll face in the future? And the, some of the things that Neil is pointing out, I mean, I'm with you, Neil. Like We have to look at the services we offer. We have to look at the products that we, our inventory that we curate. We have to look at things we could do differently, like memberships. I think that's an amazing idea. And how we're working with brands into the future. You know, this idea of a, of a test center or a, a store in store that you're basically having a brand pay part of your lease. I mean, that's really forward thinking. We, and that's really where we need to go. Have you heard of the Bicycle Retailer Excellence Awards? The NBDA's Bicycle Retailer Excellence Award celebrates diversity and excellence in bicycle retail. With a focus on inclusivity, the program unites retailers, suppliers, industry organizations, advocates, and consumers in identifying and highlighting exceptional bicycle stores across North America. Recipients will be acknowledged and awarded not only for their excellence in retail, but their integrity, inclusiveness, spirit, and commitment to grow ridership. In 2021, over 300 retailers took part in the program. In 2022, one of them should be you. Visit the NBDA website to sign up now. There's no cost to participate in the program, and all retailers will benefit from completing the revised application featuring highly analytical questions related to the why of your business. Winners will be announced in July 2022, and an exciting awards program will be held live in person at the Big Gear Show in August. The Bicycle Retailer Excellence Awards are supported by the Ride It Daily Extended Service Warranty Program, or RIDES. 
Retailers across the nation are finding that offering this extended service program is an opportunity to add additional revenue to each bike purchase without stocking additional inventory. You also create a lasting relationship with new bike buyers as they're returning more often for all of their service and maintenance needs. Rides offers you additional revenue, customer satisfaction, and customer retention. Join the excellent retailers in offering Ride a Daily extended service. Find out more and sign up now online at nbda.com. So Neil, I know you have like a kiosk inside the shop, can like a computer station that consumers can look at products online. So are you working with any D2C brands or or what kind of role are you have you brought in any new brands over the past couple of years or have you, have your brands changed, I guess? Sure, yes, we we uh, we do have a kiosk. It's a a nice big computer easily accessible by the customer and the the team on the floor. And it's a uh, it's really a big part of our what we call our concierge service. So if we can't provide the customer with the right fit, whether it's a, a widget or a bicycle, then we can offer to sit down and help them find the product that's truly right for them. And you know it, we use it for a number of different things. You know, web searches. One of the things that's really cool about the kiosk is we're uh, heavily invested in Bosch powered e-bikes. And Bosch has a range calculator program on their website, which is just first rate. You can plug in a lot of different parameters and really give a customer an idea with the bike that they're looking at exactly how they can, how far they can go under different circumstances. So that really resonates and it's a great use. And I think it's actually going to keep expanding. So one of the things we're hoping in the future is that we'll be able to use iPads that have software tagged to RFID around the store. And the customer literally could be, you know, handed an iPad that helps them do research where they, you know, they see a particular product. Let's say the, they see a Cannondale Super 6 Evo in front of them and using RFID immediately on the iPad comes up every cool thing, every cool feature about the bike. It may be that it's actually our sales associates that use that. It's, you know, we're still trying to develop that, but really, really feel that giving the customer that remarkable experience where they can learn everything they really need and want about a thing or a service will will just strengthen our brand. Yeah, so not shying away from technology because it's like if if we're not giving all the information, it's like we're hiding something almost. So here it is, like here's all the reviews, here's everything you can find, but the bikery still is the best spot because you're going to make sure they're set up properly, you're going to fit them properly, make sure they have all the right, you know, the pump, all the accessories to outfit their bike and then show them a place to ride. How are you working with your community? Do you have group rides, Neil, or or you know, I know with COVID we've had to make some adjustments, but how are you involved with your community as far as giving people, you know, a place to ride their bike? During COVID, we did discontinue our group rides for quite a while. And it's almost like you get out of the habit of something and it's hard to get it back. And what we're, we're doing now is slowly crawling out of the COVID shadow. So we're, we've got big plans that we've had on hold for over two years now, specifically for us related to what we call gravel travel or, or adventure travel. Starting at the 
entry level where we would provide bikes and a place to to try out products and just sort of get into the sport all the way to maybe going out of state or even overseas and doing adventure travel. But we just did our very first post-COVID adventure where we packed up Taylor and our assistant manager, Tang, and five customers and went up to the Dirty Pecan gravel ride up near Tallahassee, Florida. And it was a hoot. They just had such a ball. You know, we use it as a, a means of creating media as well, but we're hoping to, to really integrate that. So right now we're really hoping to do a lot more in the way of uh, gravel, both training and social and adventure travel. I love that. And gravel is such a hot sport. And I had no, I did a gravel race, 150 mile, uh, the hurricane. It was in Florida. I had no idea how much gravel was in Florida. It's actually awesome. <laughs> you know, thinking you, you spoke there on Bosch for a second, great tip about their online resources. You know, I see e-bikes just coming back from the new wheel as definitely expanding as price points are, you know, getting more diverse. How has that been navigating e-bikes? Have you expanded your offering in the past couple of years with, have you seen more people looking for e-bikes? Have you seen that that spike in your business? Well, yeah, we've seen a, a great deal of interest. It was really taking off and we, we've been very inventory constrained for two years now. We sold out of e-bikes and we just haven't been able to get product. We just picked up Gazelle, which has... It looks just terrific. We love the product. They're, you know, very, very first rate as far as their training and um, support. So they're entirely Bosch, which we're big believers. And yeah, we've actually got a lot of gazelles just in. We've been doing really well, a lot of interest. So that's great. You know, e-bikes have been a challenge for us from the very beginning because for whatever reason, margins on e-bikes has been really tough, really poor. So we try hard not to lose too much money on each sale. And, you know, when you start looking at e-bikes that are being offered at below 30% margins, at this point in time, it makes it, it makes it really difficult to get behind. So we've managed to do a little better in that area. And we've definitely taken our knocks with low cost e-bikes. We, We've tried, there's a big demand for inexpensive hub motor e-bikes and they're selling like crazy. Our experience was that really we were doing our customers a big disservice because over time, you know, they're unhappy with the results of the products and our service department would be just slammed with trying to keep some of these products running. So we've really settled for the most part, right now on Bosch, almost trouble-free, you know, first-rate diagnostics. And notwithstanding the margin challenges on Bosch products, they're just so good for our customer. It's like we we feel like heroes getting behind it. I hear you. I hear you. And uh, congratulations on Gazelle. It seems like a great brand at great price points. And I agree with the Bosch motor. Having ridden one now, I can see how smooth they are and how easy they are to use. I want to flip gears here a little bit because I want to make sure I have time to get into your service center. Um, I know that you made a major change this year, shifting to a paperless service system. 
Can you speak to how this has been? Any improvements you've noticed? Or if you're like, oh my gosh, what did I do? Or <laughs> how's it going? You know, back to George Lee and his discussion of operational excellence. You know, it really is. It's all about great customer service. And the way we were doing it, the old school way, filling out a, a ticket, you know, just made for a poor customer experience. We would just not be able to give the customers expedient answers. Things would, you know, get lost in the cracks. So it was um, really at at uh, an NBDA consultant, David DeKaiser's suggestion that we just really work hard on paperless. And so over a period of months, we brought it in. We actually, even for a while there, continued to fill out paper service tickets while we were also doing our web-based service tickets. And there's no doubt that the result for our customers is vastly superior in, you know, the ability to organize, keep track of, as far as parts purchasing for repairs, it's uh, it's first rate. We, We definitely have lots of room for improvement. One of the things I'd like to do, we'd like to figure out, and we've still not gotten there, is how to do reservations where customers actually reserve time, bring in their bikes and and have the service done right away. And we haven't figured that out because we tried it just, you know, you know, for a little while. And we found that 70% of the customers who made reservations never showed up. So our service department was really left holding the bag for the, the most part, just with, you know, mechanic, a mechanic standing around waiting for a customer who didn't show up. So we're, we're trying to work on that. We're not quite sure exactly how to make that work, but it's definitely on the burner. So how are your employees, you know, working in the service shop? I know these guys are vested with you um, because, you know, obviously they've been with you for a long time now, but how are they as far as being open and receptive to the switch to paperless? Were they on board hundred percent? Or I know that's always like, how do we get the employees rallied? So what was your, your feedback there? There was a lot of resistance. There was a lot of concern and there's, you know, still, I think, some people who want to put post-it notes everywhere <laughs> rather than, than use the tools that we have available. But, you know, it's obvious we, we happen to use Lightspeed and their service tools within Lightspeed is really great. It's not without its flaws, but it's really, really good. It's just a matter of doing a good job training people on how to use it. And so generally what I found is anytime there's really strong resistance, it's mostly just because we've done such a bad job training or explaining how how to make it work that the the employee resists. And uh, once they really understand how to make it work smoothly and understand how great it is for the customer, then they come on board wholeheartedly. Mm -hmm. So how are you communicating with your customers? Do you text them or like, how are you letting them know a bike is ready for pickup or do you use Ikeona or any sort of services for that? We don't. Uh, I'm, I'm still looking at that. And personally, it's been, I've been kind of a, a stick in the mud because I hate getting texts from companies that are marketing to me. It's like this constantly the phone going off with, um, you know, really inane 
marketing messages. So I've been very resistant, but I, I'm coming to understand that there's a big difference between unwanted marketing and you know customer permission, where customers give you expressly give you permission to communicate with them in that way, and they welcome it. So it's it's definitely something that I need to get over and start really looking at. And, and uh, so, yes, we're, we're looking at it. We haven't gone there yet. And right now we're using uh, telephone and email. Yeah. And telephone's nice because when a lot needs to be done, you know, you can communicate it. You're one of the most intelligent people I know. And I know you for operational efficiency, I think you've used or, or still do currently. I'm not quite sure. You'll have to let us know about retail toolkit other software for your business. Is there anything that you have found to be extremely valuable in just operational efficiency for you as a tool to run the business? Absolutely. A real bright spot in in our brand over the past three months has been bringing on Bike Rental Manager, the software booking tool. And our rentals have really been growing. You know, it's really, really great to see something really working. And we were getting to the point with our rentals where, you know, we were just doing a bad job for the customers. We didn't really know what was there, what was available, when it was coming back, you know, what are the pricing on the various, you know, items and bike rental manager is not super easy to use. It, it's, uh, but it's, it's very flexible. And on the front end for the customer, it's terrific. So our bookings have, increased maybe not exponentially but significantly and so we're we're super pleased so i don't know if it's the only great rental program out there but it's it's a good one we're real happy with it i like that bike rental manager yeah rentals are a huge thing a lot of a lot of retailers had sold off their rental fleets when we had you know lack of supply but they're you know either starting back up and building up their rental inventory and it can be a really great revenue resource. Is there any other services that you offer that I, we haven't covered that you, I mean, what about your fit services? You have a whole dedicated fit room. How has that been going for you, Neil? Yeah, fit has been a central part of our brand from day one. You know, we really subscribe to fit first and the, you know, Taylor is our lead fitter and he's gone and, and worked with a wonderful Perek McGuinn, who is one of the best fitters out there, and and he did training with him, and then he did slow twitch in, I believe it's San Diego, for, I guess, directed mostly towards the tri and aero bike guys, and then also, you know, now uh, with Retool. So uh, we use the motion capture software, and we have a dedicated private studio where customers, you know, can come in and close the door and work with a fitter, you know, in privacy. So uh, it's, uh, it's really central. It's, uh, we, we feel that it's, it's super, super important. And then on the, the wind side, fit has been a driver of P&A sales big time. So when you have a, a working with fit and the contact points with your riders, you know, they're very receptive to trying trying new things. So that, you know, we found that P&A sales actually is eclipsing the actual cost of the fit itself. 
Yeah, that's a huge question that that I feel like comes up a lot. You know, it's like, okay, we we have this staff member that we have to dedicate a good chunk of time to a fit, but then on the return, we get a satisfied customer, we get typically a bunch of accessory sales. So, you know, how do we qualify that? Are we looking to grow fit, especially for shops that maybe are short staffed? And it's a hard question to answer, but I think in the long term, offering fit, it really improves the customer journey and the cyclist journey. But I don't know, have you ever struggled with that, Neil? Or are you just trying to book as many fittings as you can? And No, we limit we limit fits uh, to four days a week and two full motion capture fits each day. So that we're, we're limited right now to basically eight full fits. We do have lower levels, you know, bike sizings and you know, non-motion capture fitting that takes less time and, and we could do more. But, you know, it's honestly, we, we try to schedule two hours for a fit. It usually goes more. It it usually takes more time to do a really good job. So, uh, yeah, it, it's something that we've had to pay attention to. One of the things that I was pretty insistent was that uh, Taylor train another person in the on the staff in fitting so that we had flexibility because it, it just wasn't, it wasn't working to have your store manager doing fits for three hours at a stretch by himself. And uh, so there is that, you know, it's like when we talk about, you know, dwindling or evaporating margins and where we're going as remarkable brands, fit has got to be right up there close to the top of desirable elements as far as value adds for the customer that for the most part, you know, they can't sell online. You know, we can provide that, that actual tactile physical thing. And so it's like, I I think it's absolutely crucial. I I think it'd be worth actually looking at for the future. If you, if you have a small shop and fit is really tough for you, just start thinking about, well, maybe instead of investing you know, more in, in product that you'd have is maybe invest in a person to help you really develop a fit program. Yeah. It's definitely one of those questions when you're trying to balance it all and you're trying to balance your staffing and your payroll and looking at how much time it takes for certain, you know, tasks to be done to make sure they're efficient and that the margin value is high Talk about service center pricing too. A lot of shops have been, you know, re-examining how they're, you know, positioning their pricing, what their rates per hour are, or even how they're listing their packages or a la carte services. Have you made any adjustments there in the past year or two? Yeah, I, I hate to beat up on it, but after George Lee's uh, interview, we definitely used his ideas that, that you know, he talked about as far as the psychology of pricing, where you use a more expensive you know, top level item to sort of, you know, really show the value of that middle spot, the the middle tune-up, so to speak, that you're really wanting to, to offer your customer. So before we put in place the change, like a lot of stores, we had a tune-up level one, tune-up level two, and tune-up level three. Level one being you know, X amount of money, level two being a little bit more and level three being a little bit more or maybe even more than a little bit more as a a full breakdown of the bike, you know, a complete overhaul. And so what we did is we took the tune-up, what we really thought 
in general would be good for the customers, increase the price fairly substantially and then increase the price of the overhaul a lot. And then, you know, had a more moderate entry level and we changed the the naming structure. So I think right now what we have is the tune-up, which is that middle ground where most of our customers end up going. Then you have the overhaul, which is a, a really premium product and priced that way. And then you have down below, we, we call it seasonal maintenance. It's like your bike's in good shape. All you want us to do is clean, lube, adjust, and you know check sort of the contact points. So, and it is, it's brilliant. It worked really, really well. And the frequency of that, what we call a tune-up, which was before the second level tune-up has become the norm as opposed to the level one tune-up and uh, it's worked brilliantly. So yeah, big believer. There is something there with the psychology, right? And so we don't want the less expensive thing. You know, we don't want to be like, <laughs> so it's, I'm glad to hear that. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah, it was a great podcast. There was, it was like an hour and a half podcast. So lots to listen in that George Lee podcast for sure. So I'm picturing the store right now offering some steel bikes, maybe some, you know, road bikes, uh, e-bikes, recreational bikes. Are you a full service shop now? I haven't really gotten in. Do you do kids bikes and mountain bikes as well? Or what's your inventory look like in that regard? We are still very much inventory constrained from where we want to be. Mm-hmm. So we want to, we have never really gotten into mountain biking. You know, we're in a, a major city. We're not close. We're over, over an hour away from the nearest real you know, single track mountain bike park. And I'd love to bring mountain biking into our brand mix. And it's there, it's just not possible right now. So we're constrained there. We've historically been a uh, heavy on road bike, and then also what I call all road or gravel. And right now getting road bikes is a, a serious challenge, really, really tough. So you know, we, we try to, to, you know, touch bases with uh, as much as the cycling world as we can. But, uh, you know, like I said, we're still product constrained. Once we hopefully work our way out of this, we want to develop mountain biking in the store, which we never have, and integrate it with our gravel program, which is doing pretty well. And uh, as I said before, we're doing gazelle e-bikes. We also have a a batch e-bike, which is Bosch powered, which is doing really well. And yeah, so we'll we'll go from there. You know, we've been a Moots dealer from day one. That was our first brand that came on board that took a chance on Taylor and me and the guys. And it's just been incredible. It's uh, American made titanium that is outstanding. So I can't say enough about the, the working with Moots and the Moots guys. So yeah, that I mean, Moots, you were just telling me off air too that Taylor rides a Moots. And I think that's something too, when we ride the products that we sell, we're really able to communicate the feel and the passion behind the brand. Um, so you're reading Remarkable Retail, or you have read Remarkable Retail by Stan, uh, Steve Dennis. Anything right now that is sitting with you that, you know, thinking about the future, thinking about things that our listeners could do that are remarkable in retail that you would share? Yeah, you know, you had you had 
mention just briefly what what you would do, how you would build your store if you could start completely over again? And what would a bicycle shop of the future look like? My answer would be a television studio. Forget about forget about the things, forget about the products. I think we need to really look at our stores as media and we need to look at our stores centered not on products, but our world needs to revolve entirely around the customer. So yeah, it's like build a TV studio, use YouTube, do lots of videos. You need to offer to your customer fantastic information. If you can do videos that your customers would pay for, they'll embrace you. I think we're going to see the major brands continually uh, continue to uh, acquire brick and mortar stores rapidly and they want to control the entire customer experience, which is totally understandable. And I think the entire wholesale to retail relationship is evaporating maybe sooner rather than later. You know, we can see that with the brands buying brick and mortar all over the place. You can see what's happened, for instance, with Nike in the shoe space where they open their own brick and mortar stores so that they can completely control it. So it kind of leaves us, okay, what are we going to do as independent retailers? You know, it used to be, it's like the old thing, you pile it high and let it fly. And that's how you make money. And that's how you do it. And I, I think from reinventing retail from Doug Stevens, the way he puts it is you have to put the customer at the center of everything you do. You know, you have at your disposal, creativity, your smallness allows you to be really nimble. You can work with unique and elegant design, and you can create a a really uh, organic intimacy with your customer and create customer allegiance. You know, that's it. I think that's really where we need to go. Neil, are you not angry at these brands? Are you not angry at this industry that you came into, but rather you're optimistic about the things you can do? Is that what I'm hearing? Because there's some retailers who are angry right now. You know, being angry isn't going to do any good at all. And, you know, maybe there's a little bit, but generally, you know, my anger is not due to brands going DTC. It's being maybe disingenuous. Mm-hmm. You know, they're they're making big changes, but they're saying, you know, other things. And I, I think a lot of it is just when your world is uh, in the middle of a revolution, it's uh, it's hard for people to sort of find their feet, and so no, I'm not I'm not angry, and I, I you know I think that the brands are going to do really well. I think they're going personally. I think that they're going to be continue to buy their own stores. That they realize that brick and mortar is really important, but they want to control the story. They want to control their own story, and I think it was described as apex predators. They're going to be at the very top of the food chain, and you're just not going to be able to compete with that as a small independent store. So you have to find the places that you can be better and that you can offer more. And it's like being angry about it. It's kind of like being angry about the weather, Heather. It's like, I, you know, I don't think that there's a conspiracy. Nobody's trying to do bad things to the local bike shop. We're just watching the world change, and we're going to have to have to do the very best we can to adapt. 
It seems like a really healthy way to look at it. And I feel like you're arming yourself, you know, with you're constantly reading, you're working with industry professionals, you're changing your retail operations, using things like rental manager, just things to continue to thrive. But you said it like position yourself like a movie set and the YouTube videos. I mean, fantastic advice here. Now we just have to follow our own advice. It's like it's easier said than done. So yeah, it's like, it's important, but it doesn't happen overnight. And the other thing is timing is everything. As of right now, still at the bikery, you know, 50% of our sales is still with the brands that I'm talking about having trouble, you know, continuing with. But, uh, you know, it, it, you, you can't just do everything overnight. And so we're still watching what I'm looking at as the end of the wholesale retail paradigm but you can't just abandon what's happening right now. You have to, you have to, you know, really start to plan and work to to make these changes in a way that's good for everybody. It's definitely a long-term vision, keeping an eye on the pulse of everything while continuing to operate in your business. There's a, a lot going on here. Um, is there anything you'd like to see the collective industry focus on at large? Maybe more transparency? <laughs> No, I, I think that that's a really good question. And, uh, and honestly, I think that the bike business is doing a pretty good job as far as advocating for being good stewards of our environment, of creating better bike-centered cities, of helping people lead healthier lives. You know, it's like, as well as just the sheer joy of the, the two-wheeled experience. And honestly, I think the bike business in general is doing a pretty good job there. I mean, we can certainly always do better, but, you know, most importantly, just, you know, helping customers understand, you know, that you can live without cars, <laughs> which, I mean, you know, it's like, obviously in the United States is a really tough ask right now, but hopefully is uh, the younger people with, you know, really, open eyes come into it without too many preconceived notions will start constructing places that bicycles become ubiquitous and the car is something that maybe you rent every now and then to go on a on a trip. I love the way you look at life, Neil. You're awesome. <laughs> You're fantastic. <laughs> but it's awesome to see this amazing bike boom we've had and to see where e-bikes can take us and where the industry is just going. I'm really optimistic and um Again, super thankful for you coming to the Monday Mingles. And, you know, if you haven't, if our listeners haven't been on a Monday Mingle, it's a great opportunity to meet with other retailers and share what's keeping you up at night, share your challenges. And Neil and, and the, the regulars of the group um, have just a fantastic resource to bounce ideas off of. And there's always someone, you know, who maybe has experienced what you're feeling and, and can give you some relatable uh, feedback or advice. It is fantastic. You know, the community, it's like, I, I'm really amazed that more people don't take part. You have the opportunity to hear people like Larry uh, Black and, you know, Neil Weckler and other just, you know, terrific. Kristen, for instance, from Steve, the bike guy, you know, we're talking people with a, a lot, a lot to offer and they're, they're giving it away free. I'm like, well, you know, goodness. It's like, I really don't like to miss it. Well, Neil, thank you for coming on the podcast. I love when shop owners, retailers are 
willing to come on and share what they're doing that's unique in their community, their vision for the retail future forward uh, means so much to me, to the MBDA, to our listeners. Uh, if people listening wanted to get in contact with you, maybe had some questions, wanted to dive into the books deeper, is there contact information you would share? Sure. My email address is neil, N-E-A-L, at thebikery.bike. Sure. I'd be happy to. Neil, thank you for coming on the show. It has been awesome. I've learned some things that, you know, I thought I knew you. It's been like a year now, I think, since since we've been, uh, but always learn something more, something new every time. So for our listeners, that is it. I invite you to come on Bicycle Retail Radio, share your story, check out the MBDA website. There's lots of great webinars coming up. There's some new blogs that have been posted. We have a YouTube page as well. So if you're a fan of YouTube, head over to YouTube and find the mbda.com page there. If you're a first-time listener, be sure to check out the previous episodes. Do us a favor and leave a review. If you'd like to support the show, don't forget to subscribe. Thank you for listening. And with this, we go. Bye. This has been Bicycle Retail Radio by the National Bicycle Dealers Association. For more information on membership and member benefits, join us at nbda.com. Thank you.